Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on The Payoff, a conversation with Ali Perry. Ali is a titan in the fitness industry, and she's absolutely hilarious. She's also almost a decade sober. Now, this is a story that is unbelievably inspiring. It's also got the makings of a lifetime movie. Her words, not mine. You're going to love this podcast. But first, Kevin Souza. Stand by the ocean floor. I know you're sober a lot of years. Is it seven or eight or nine? I think it's 12 one 12. I'm really bad at math. So I'm thinking it's over eight now. Over is it is right? over eight years. Yeah. We're coming up. Well, I guess we're a while away, but it'll, it'll be nine years soon. I, I, I was nine years um, in November. Nice. Yeah. November what? November 7th, 2011. Beautiful. November I'm pretty sure that I got sober in November as well, but I like 12 one 12 better. Like I have a couple extra days, but when I was, Looking at my data, I was like, ooh, 12 and 12, I like that. Better than 11, 29, 12. So that's why I went with that one. <laughs> Did you get sober on the first try? Um, I used to say yes, but no. I, um, I, got, I stopped drinking and using um, drugs except for my prescription Adderall. And I kept taking that for nine months. And then that's when, um, that's when I truly got sober and stopped taking Adderall and all that too. And that was really complicated for me because I was in the middle of a custody battle and part of the court documentation said that I had to take something for my ADHD medicine. And so being really newly sober and not wanting to be sober, I took that as I have to keep taking Adderall. And at first, I only took it. It was weird. I only took it when I was being drug tested so that it would show up on a drug test. And then I did that for several months, and then I just fell back into taking it and, and abusing it after that. So it's uh, it was it was a complicated little situation, as they always are. But it ended up with me abusing it again, and at nine months, um, a big a big event happened, and I got um, I got sober. We'll get to that big event. I, I too, my first memory of substances uh, working for me, I was a kid in grade school at St. Thomas Good Council outside of Philadelphia and Bryn Mawr. And uh, I was like one of the, I always think because I'm unique, right? I was one of the first people to take Ritalin, but I was like one of the, that first wave where they were prescribing kids that couldn't sit still. Um, and, you know, kids with learning disabilities, but me being, having that addict DNA, I can remember going to the principal's office and they would give it to me in the morning. My mom would, and then I would take it at lunch. And that's my first memory of being like, oh, like I'm kind of, I'm kind of turned on now. And like two things happened. One, I definitely think I had a chemical reaction to that. And I did throughout the course of my, um, you know, my, my, my drinking and using. And two, I felt like I had to take something to, to be something. You know, I always felt like I, for me, I wasn't like quite good enough. Mm-hmm. You had to take it just to be even with the other kids. Just to be even with the other kids. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's kind of, I, I worked under that, uh, under that belief. Now I want to ask you, you mentioned when you stopped, when did you start? When was the first time that you got drunk or you got high? Okay. But I have a follow-up question to your statement first and then I'll answer yours. Absolutely. When you were going and taking the Adderall at the, at the principal's office or Gridland, I guess I didn't have Adderall yet. Did you look, did you find yourself looking forward to it or were you ashamed of it? Uh, I was ashamed of it, but then I can remember there was a point in time where I was embarrassed because I remember a couple girls were like, mm. you're, you're spaz um, because it was kind of known that I had to go take it at lunch. It was like a small Catholic school. And then there was a point in time where I remember it working. Uh, I can, I really can remember it working and I can remember being thinking, not only do I, I'm, be I'm better on this. Uh, so I uh -huh. definitely, and, and when you're a kid, you can't, you know, you really can't abuse it. Um, unless you're into the queen's gambit. I don't know if you've seen that, but I couldn't, <laughs> I didn't have the, I, I didn't have the access. So, but that's the answer to your follow-up. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I forgot what your question was. When's the first time you got drunk or the first time you got high? Got it. Okay. Um, so the first time I got drunk, I think was in about middle school, right? I'd already used my first drug of choice of sugar, like sugar immediately from, you know, six, six years old. As soon as I can remember onward was my first drug and the first thing that I used to make me change the way I felt. But um, we were a bunch of latchkey kids and one of the older kids, I think maybe freshman in high school, made some Everclear. And uh, we all were drinking it and having fun. And I didn't really get that drunk. And I remember still being kind of scared from it. Not really, not really excited. I didn't have that reaction that, that a lot of um, addicts have the first time they drink. And I think I just kind of got tipsy. So that takes me to the first time I really got drunk. And that was the week before high school started. Um, I got invited to an upperclassman party and I went there and the hunky hot like wrestler surfer dudes had some Kool-Aid, right? That awesome Kool-Aid. <laughs> they were like, are you thirsty? Do you have some Kool-Aid? And I was like, yeah, this is delicious. And hey, it's got sugar. So I drank a shit ton of it. And then I ended up like dancing on a table and going upstairs and like my sister's best friend who was older was there and he saw me walking upstairs and um I'm pretty sure he I mean I was barely 14 I was a young high schooler and I didn't know what I was doing some dude was like let's go upstairs so my sister's best friend pulled the guy by his shirt ripped his shirt off jerked him downstairs called my mom my mom came and picked me up and I remember she had her boss's car and I puked all over the car all the way home. And then she woke my ass up at like 7 a.m. the next morning with a bucket and a pail and said, go clean the car. <laughs> I was, and then I didn't drink for years. I was, uh, I was terrified. I didn't want to be. So you were scared. Sp- you were scared straight almost. Yeah. I was scared straight through high school. I drank a couple more times with very similar results, like embarrassing, talking so much, being like, I'm the best, look at how many shots I can take. And then just being horribly sick afterwards. Um, I was pretty much a good girl in, in high school. I started the sad chapter at my school. <laughs> Students <laughs> against drunk driving. I sure as shit did. I started the sad chapter. I was, president i was cross-country captain i was editor of the newspaper i was i was all those things i was the girl that wouldn't let you listen to gangster rap on the way to school because it was misogynistic like i was that chick and this is in nags head uh, north carolina yep in Kildover hills the high school was in manio yeah um i was that chick i was the chick that defended all the all the freaks and geeks and um probably would have been a freaking geek as well if i hadn't been easy on the eyes <laughs> but then I went true. I mean, it's true. Well, Ligers it's true. And, and, and just people know right now, you can go to Ollie Perry fitness IG. If you don't believe, <laughs> if you don't believe her, um, we'll get, we'll get to more of that later. When do you start to see yourself drinking or, or using with consistency? Was there a moment? I mean, you mentioned it was real spotty throughout Absolutely. high school. So I didn't have, I didn't realize this until I'd been sober for a few years and had been in like intensive therapy. Um, and so senior year of high school, my childhood friend, the one that I got drunk with when I was in seventh grade came to me and asked me if I had remembered this neighbor who used to live in our neighborhood. And, um, I kind of like got the cold sweats immediately. And she was like, do you remember him? I said, yeah. And she was like, do you remember what he used to do? And he was a predator and he was a child molester and even, you know, hurt his daughters, hurt hundreds of kids. And um, I had blocked it all out, like completely blocked it all out from like third, fourth, fifth grade. And there was several of the kids that was very much like single mom. It was a nice neighborhood, but a lot of the moms were working moms, divorced moms. And um, so we were just kind of, as a lot of kids were in the 80s growing up, like you'd come home from school and get out and ride your bike and be around outside all day long until the sun went down. Yeah, that's that's what I did, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I did. And it was great, except our neighborhood in particular had a predator. And so he, you know, did what he did with, I think there was about half a dozen kids in our neighborhood. A lot of those girls ended up 
having a very different trajectory in their life. Like they weren't able to get back to center um, afterwards. I was one of the only ones that kind of pulled it back together. Um, so she reminded me of that and we went to the cops and filed a report and tried to press charges and all of that. And that point was when I started smoking and drinking and that was the end of senior year of high school and then between then and when I started in college I tried like 20 different drugs I remember doing a list when I was in college and I listed everything out my freshman year like look how many drugs we've tried this is amazing <laughs> like a proud list like there was no shame in it it was like holy shit we've done so many drugs I mean I laugh but it's but it's and, and it's only funny to another alcoholic talking to another alcoholic who is sober because that's kind of the mindset right yeah yeah, for sure. I mean, you're proud of it. It's it's your it's your badge. You you can drink more, you can take more, you've had more experiences, you know, all of that. So, in the moment, I had no idea that that was that was when it shifted, right? Cuz I was I have I'm ADD as well and I just kept myself busy. So, my drug was taking myself to the point of exhaustion and sugar in high school, right? And then when when that trauma flooded back in, um but keeping myself busy and sugar wasn't enough. So I just, I needed more. I didn't know how to deal with it. And I wasn't even aware that I was dealing with it. If you know what I mean? Like I, I didn't, sure. I didn't have, I didn't have the clarity to know like, okay, now I'm going to, now I'm using drugs because I'm remembering all this trauma that I went through. Those traumatic events. And, and I appreciate you sharing that because that's the kind of thing that, and we'll get to this in a little bit, but that's how you stay well sitting down uh, in the program and sitting down with the sponsor and somebody and sharing this stuff um, with them. And, and before you share it with them, this is for me, you think it's just going to be, you know, whatever it is that somebody's carrying with them, that it's going to be something that, you know, the, the person across from you might be like, oh my God, you're, you're horrible when it's the exact opposite. Yeah. They relate yeah. or they laugh at you. My sponsor laughed at me when I told her the worst thing I'd done. She laughed straight in my face. And I was just like, really? <laughs> That's not awful. So yeah, there's, there's that understanding and, and, and in my experience, I've noticed that a lot of people don't talk about trauma. They don't bring it up and whether it's because they're ashamed of it or they don't think it's relevant or they don't want to have an excuse or stigma label, whatever the reason is, it's not tested on enough. And when I get to know people who are sober and people who have gone, you know, who have decided to be sober, have gone through stuff. Oh, it's it's a common theme. Like, oh, I think it's like abuse. I think it's like yeah, the the sexual abuse. I heard uh, Dak Shepard talk about it on his podcast or a podcast with Brene Brown, something like Brene Brown, the therapist, and he said it was something yeah. like eighty um, yeah. percent of of talk about it a lot. Yeah, eighty yeah. percent of, of kids that are sexually abused become alcoholics or some crazy statistic like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that makes you think, like. You know, they say that there's there's a chemical imbalance that our brains are wired differently. Like, does the abuse make your brain wired differently? Or having your brain wired differently, does that make you more susceptible to a predator? Like, they can sense it. I don't know. It just brings my head down a rabbit hole wondering how it's all connected. But, this, I mean, facts are the facts. The vast majority of people who have addiction and have alcohol issues have had that kind of trauma in the past. It's certainly a, tr- um, it's certainly a trigger. If somebody's listening today, you know, they're carrying this thing with them. And they're, they feel like they're unable to share it or let it out. And they are, do have a drinking or alcohol or, or drug problem that they're using to cover it up or to kind of shut it down and quiet that voice. What would you tell them? Number one, hit me up. I'm always, I'm always available and like, and want to be of service for people who are doing that. Um, you like, there's no reason to sit on that alone. And the only thing it does is just break you down from the inside out. Like, I mean, I've, I've shared that part of my experience half a dozen times and my heart's still racing now talking about it. Like, like it, it still brings up damage and hurt and pain. But the difference is that because I talked about it and because I trusted other humans to be kind and they were, and, and I, I took that leap of faith. I exposed myself that way. It makes it less tender every single time. You know, it makes it more of a of an example of strength and overcoming something than it is of you being a victim and you um, having something wrong with you. Like there's nothing wrong with that happening to you. 
the only thing I would say could be wrong is is having keeping it inside and not allowing yourself giving yourself the permission to heal and it becomes a story for other people to relate to that gives them the courage and gives them the power to reach out and have healing as well you know when I've shared that story with other people the response has never been anything other than wow that's brave thank you for sharing that or oh my gosh I thought I was the only one you know like your story gives other people strength that's that's it so like whether it's reaching out to me or reaching out to a therapist or any number of the support systems that are out there there's all you gotta do is google it you know like the first step is just letting go of that secret and And you'll find that people are so loving about it they're not there's not that shame about it anymore. People are, people are hip to it, you know? Yeah. And once shame is put into words, a lot of times it can, it, it dies out. It doesn't exist. Uh, yes, and that's, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You've got this terrible trauma that happens. You start, you know, you notice you're abusing drugs throughout college. And then what happens after college from, from what I took, you're abusing drugs, you're making the list in college. And then how does it go from there? Um, it was, it got really bad. Um, my sophomore year in college was- Where'd you go to school, by the way? My, UNC Greensboro. Okay. My best friend went to Greensboro, mm-hmm. and I heard there was a lot of green there. You know, like UNC Green or UNC Gay, back when you could say that. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of pot, and there was a lot of, like, counterculture people there. So I was in. I was like, I'm in. I was sick of the surfer boys. I didn't want to go to UNCW. I was like, I don't want to see all these people again. I didn't want to go to state. I thought that was all the rednecks, so I went to UNCG. So you're at um, UNCG and you're, 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 it's getting pretty bad. It's getting bad. Like the beginning. So the, I was a, pretty much a straight A student through high school. And then I started college and my grades plummeted immediately. I wasn't going to class. I went from being busy from sunup to sundown well into the night to having what four, four hours a day where I had to be accountable. Um, that combined with using, I just, it, it just, all of it just kind of went downhill real fast. So uh, my mom was trying to figure out what was going on with me. She was like, maybe you have ADHD now that you're not busy. Let's get you tested. So they got me tested. They gave me Adderall. So now I have Adderall, weed, alcohol, all the other drugs that you get in college. Um, and from then it was like, I couldn't sleep. So they gave me Xanax. And then it was like, I had stomach issues. So they gave me something else. So I was, by the time I was a sophomore, I was on a bunch of narcotics and, um, weighed 30 pounds less than I do now, skin awful. I mean, just, just really, really bad. And my mom, my best friend called my mom and was like, she needs help. And my mom, which I was resentful about years, but now knowing where I was and understanding my addiction and understanding her as a human being and being a mother myself, she said, she's not, I can't, I'm not going to send her to rehab unless she's ready. She was like, she's not going to do anything unless she, unless it's her. What she said was, She's not going to do anything unless it's her idea. Which is actually like uh, brilliant because that, I mean, that's in the, yeah. the, the, the literature uh, for the big book for people that get sober is, uh, you know, let, let the alcoholic think it was their idea. And she didn't know. She never read the book. She just really smart. Can I curse? Well, yeah, you just did. But I mean, can I? Again yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, off? yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Less. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I ended up taking your school. Did a little geographic, moved to California, came back, finished school. And so you went I back moved. to, so you went to California. That's what we call uh, in recovery, like a geographic change. It's like wherever yeah, you, wherever you go, there you are. Uh, it doesn't work. Yeah, and I was there again. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got a little better. I got a little better. I uh, put on weight. I um, stopped using as much, right? Didn't party as much. Went back and finished school and then uh, moved to New York for a little bit. Then I moved to LA. And so what are you and doing then, this whole time professionally? I mean, it's, it's AlliePerryFitness.com. And uh, like I said, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But what was your career trajectory? Um, trying not to work as much as I could and have a really good life. Like I didn't, I didn't, I was, you know, my, my major was media, um, journalism, and I had an internship afterwards at a news station. I didn't do it. I was like, I'm not doing that because it was work and I didn't want to. So I moved to New York with um, this guy that I had a huge crush on when I was younger and started modeling. And he was like the first guy on the cover of Teen Magazine and uh, much older than me. So I started dating him, moved to New York, did commercial stuff and modeling for a while, and then realized um, that it wasn't 
the right fit for me, meaning the relationship, not the job, because the job was great because you never did anything. Um, and then moved to LA for a job in um, fashion merchandising because my sister was there and she just had a baby. So I did another geographic, but this time it was to get away from a relationship. Um, and shortly after, and at this point I wasn't, I wasn't that bad. I was actually just, I was still pothead, but I didn't drink much because my stomach was messed up from all the stuff I'd done in college. So at this point I'm just a pothead and Xanax sometimes, which was like, it was like a chill period. What was the, what was the drug uh, culture like uh, as far as modeling was concerned in that world? Um, very prevalent. You know, no one, there's no shame around it. I was always pretty secretive about my drugs, but like everyone else was just very open. They would take it. They would take whatever out of their purse, just pop it right in front of you or, you know, not as glamorous as some of the movies make it seem, but it wasn't, um, there was no shame in it. It was just, it was almost like, Hey, you want a cup of tea? You know, like it wasn't even really discussed. It was just there and you just did it. Right. Whereas I never wanted to do my drugs in front of anyone because I didn't want to share. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. Right. I yeah. was like, why are you, they're just sharing their drugs. Like what if they were an out, you know, like I was always like, no, I don't have any, I'm not holding, I don't have anything. So it was just a very, I, I, what I noticed the most was there was a lack of shame around it. And I always felt shame around my drug use because I was doing it for a reason. You know, I was doing it to forget, not because drugs were fun. Was there a point where you really, where you noticed you started to really use it uh, almost as a way of whether it's social lubrication or whether it's just feeling like you're fitting in? Yeah. I mean, within the first couple months of college, I was there. I mean, I only swallowed my ADHD medicine for like three months. The rest of the time I was going straight up my nose. Like there was no casual or um, used as prescribed period in my life. Like I went from zero to a hundred. Did, the, did uh, you think that uh, you were going to need to get sober? Like for me, a lot of the time I had some people in my life who had gotten sober and I said, okay, there's a way out. And I had a really good friend who's still sober today, like many, many years. And uh, he got sober when we were, we were 18. And I saw this guy and I saw he had a light coming off him. And I was like, there is a way out. Did you ever have that, maybe a notion that, okay, I'm going to have to get sober someday. And if I do, it's going to be okay. Or was it not even on the radar? Um, I didn't have an example that way. There were, there were a couple people in high school and college that were what they used to call straight edge. Um, I just thought they were really weird and, they're also like born again and straight edge at the same time. So I was very confused by it. Um, I didn't understand why anyone would want to be sober. Um, once I'd found drugs and alcohol, like that's what I was going to do forever. My, my train of thought was more like, I'm going to die from this and that's okay. You know, kind of like suicidal ideation or just acceptance of if I continue down this road, I'm not going to live for very long. And I was, that didn't scare me. I was okay with it. Um, I had no self-worth, no self-esteem. I didn't, I didn't want to live, but I also didn't have the, I didn't have the courage to end anything. Right. So I just wanted to be here, but only my body be here. And you're at, you're at that jumping off point, right? You can't live with it. You can't live without it. What was that jumping off point for you where it maybe led to a moment of clarity? Um, so that's fast forwarding 10 years from from where we were from moving to LA. Um, so what do we miss in was. between? What do we miss in between? <laughs> fill, in the, fill in the blanks. Take, take me up until that point. Cause this is a pretty good story. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is good stuff right here. Okay. So I moved to LA. I met my first husband within months um, on the beach in Malibu. I refused to date him because he was successful and like not that like, I've always been in charge in relationships and, I was scared by his wealth and success. So we were just kind of friends for several months. Um, he's a, a spinal neurosurgeon, so he's very smart and um, very crafty. And so... How was he crafty? He started, with, with, his, like, with his words or with... Oh, very, very smart man. Um, not a... Good to other people, not good to me, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lot of psychological abuse, gaslighting, that kind of stuff, like never laid hands, never did anything like that. But, but, um, very much broke me down to a shell of 
even what I was in college. You know, by the time our marriage was over, I was um, I was nothing. I was absolutely nothing. For me, when I was when I was drinking and and uh, and, and using stuff, uh, that was a big part of my relationships. Was it a big part of this relationship? No. So when I met him, he said he has zero drug and alcohol tolerance when we started dating. So I immediately stopped smoking weed and immediately um, didn't drink anymore. I didn't drink much anyway. That lasted for a few months. We moved in together. We got married pretty quickly, like in a year and a half. We were engaged in nine months. We were married within a year and a half. Um, And so I stopped everything. And that only lasted for, I'd say, three or four months. And then I would do the, you know, doctor's wife thing. Like I'd have a gin and tonic in the afternoon before he came home from work. And then I'd start having like two. But I managed and controlled it for but you're hiding a pretty it. long time. Yeah, I'm definitely hiding it. I'm definitely taking a shower. But I wasn't getting drunk. I was just kind of like taming the beast a little bit. Um, and then we moved from Malibu to Beverly Hills. So I was like the Beverly Hills doctor's wife. And I mean, I'm not Beverly Hills material at all. I'm loud. I have opinions. I don't give a shit if your purse is Gucci or product. Like, I don't care. I was still shopping at Gap and a doctor's wife with a full staff in Beverly Hills. Like, it's not my scene at all. And um, so I didn't fit in. Um, had my fir- Had our first child. And then I was pregnant five months later. Like, first pregnancy was terrifying. I thought my child was going to have SNA type three, this whole genetic thing in my family. Didn't know till I was six months pregnant, like had a really hard pregnancy and had postpartum and ended up getting pregnant again when my first child was five months old. So I had two pregnancies back to back. Wow. Um, Is there any drinking in between the pregnancies? Oh, like in between a little bit, like I would pump and dump if I drank or whatever, Mm -hmm. but I got pregnant pretty quickly. I got pregnant two weeks after. What's what's pump, what's pump and dump? Pump and dump is if you're breastfeeding, you get drunk, then you pump your milk and dump it so you don't get your baby drunk. <laughs> so it's called pump and dump. Okay. So if you drink as a breastfeeding woman, it's not even an alcoholic thing. It's like if mm-hmm. you drink and you're breastfeeding, you pump and dump. Okay, I gotcha. Um, and they even had these little strips that you could put in your milk to see if there's alcohol in it. I had a lot of those around to make sure that I wasn't giving the kids alcohol. That should have been a sign too, right? Yeah. Um, second was born horrible postpartum couldn't function um really sad really um wanting it all to end more so than ever before um and remembered how good I felt when I was on Adderall felt a lot of pressure to like be the Beverly Hills doctor's wife with the babies and like have the you know have them always looking good and the house always looking good and all of the things that from the outside looking in would make it seem like the perfect life right and I couldn't do it I wasn't able to. So I went to the doctor, got Adderall. Keep you moving. Keep me moving. I remember the first time I took it, I was sitting out in the garden and I called my mom and I was like, mom, I was like, I feel better. And she was so happy. She heard my voice and she was like, I haven't heard you like this in years. I was like, I can do this. Like I'm able to do this now. I just, I just needed a little help. And it was, and it was fantastic, and I felt great, and, you know, everything was together, and I was able to hold down all of the different expectations that were there of me, you know, and, but it very quickly turned into now I can't sleep, so I went and got a marijuana prescription, and then I was hiding that because I wasn't supposed to do any of that, so I was, like, stashing drugs all over the house and, like, going, driving through the alleys and smoking weed in my minivan in between preschool and working out and whatever like it got out of control really fast and full-blown addiction worse than college by the time my youngest was about 18 months 18 months um horribly unhappy marriage um narcissistic tendencies on his side um very controlling never saw my friends um how was he, marriage, how did he respond to the, the abuse or, or was he even aware? Were you doing that good of a job of hiding it? No, I was horrible at hiding it. He was totally aware, wanted me to go to rehab, refused. I left him and um, this is a man who's never had anyone tell him no or leave him or anything. Um, so we were supposed to just have a nice little mediation and divorce, um, but he changed lawyers and that lawyer picked up on my addiction issues. And it turned into a 10-year custody battle, 
which was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. I left him. My addiction got worse. He wanted the kids to stay there at night because he was working all day. I agreed because in my mind, I was like, I get to see my babies all day and then I get to party all night. That's perfect. I didn't know I was setting precedent. Like I didn't understand how all of these things were going to play out in court. But it's it's insanity, right? Because it's all predicated on getting what you need as far as the drugs and alcohol are concerned. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're talking, we're talking about kids, you know, we're talking about your kids. Yeah. Yeah, and anyone in their right mind would be like, no, you're not going to have my kids at night. Like, they would probably even know that that sets precedent, which means, like, whoever, wherever the kids stay at night is who has custody, period. It didn't matter that I was with them from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and he only saw them for an hour, and the nanny was there if he was at work. Like, none of that mattered. It was who has them at night. So I had several depositions. Um, I'm talking, like, nasty, nasty, nasty stuff, like lifetime movie kind of stuff. I don't know how long this podcast is, but um, it told me I will live under a bridge before you'll have these kids. Went from, let's make this work, I'll do anything, to I will crush you and ruin you, and you will never have these kids. Had PIs following me. Had people befriend me at the preschool to get information on me. Um, Had the nastiest lawyer in... LA possible, who's known for being just absolutely horrible, um, ruthless, just just that person. You know, I was told to oh, and my lawyer told me in the deposition, just be honest. <laughs> that was my that was my advice. Just be honest. So when they were like, You when sure did you start using? Yeah. I was like, seventh grade and they're like, What was high college for you like for you? I was like, I smoked, you know, an ounce a week and took thirty hour rolls and you know, like I was honest. And no one's ever honest in those things. I mean, it was like a confession, eight hours of confession of all the shit that I've done wrong and bad. And afterwards, my lawyer was like, I didn't mean that honest. I was like, what? Like, what? Like, she just sat there and watched. My lawyer was not as good as his lawyer. (laughs) So nevertheless, the court um, ordered me to be sober. You know, we talked about that jumping off point. Was that the point where you you stopped or you surrender? No. No, it was not. That was the point where I was sober for three months and then realized, you know, this custody battle was supposed to be a year and it was going longer and longer. And I was sober for three months and just white knuckling it. Um, that was the point where um, I'm pretty crafty. I'm a smart, I'm a smart person. I'm creative. I'm a problem solver. So I figured out how to trick the test and uh, drink and go on trips and come back. Because, you know, the drug test they were having me take was a very, very specific amount of time from when you take the drug to when it would show up. And it was very, very strong, the strongest test you could have. So, like, you know, I was testing several times a week. So it, it was a very short window of time where I could drink. What a life so to I lead, figured, right? What a, I mean, the, the, the insanity. And also there's a stress of waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's what, that's what, I, that's what I'm hearing because I can, I can relate. Constant. Constantly in fear constantly looking over my shoulder. I remember finding, I was still allowed in the house at this point, and I remember finding a letter from his lawyer with um, all of the itemized bill, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and on there, it said something about the PI. So that's when I learned that there was a PI following me. So then that turns into me like crouching down in the corner, taking shots of vodka where no one can see me from any of the windows with all the lights off. Like that's where I was. Um. And that became too stressful. So then I figured out a way to actually cheat the test. And that's when my drugs and drinking went nuts. I mean, I was waking up in the morning. I didn't have my kids. All I wanted was my kids. At this point, I wasn't allowed to see them. He had started a new relationship. And I wasn't allowed to go over the house during the day. So I went from spending all day long with them to this woman uh, coming in and becoming their mom and me not being allowed to see them, and me not having the strength and knowledge to be like, these are my kids, I'm taking them, right? Yeah. Um, Year and a half, two years between court dates. So it was like two years of waiting, of not having any change in custody. And I'm like heartbroken. I can't see my kids. All I want to do is see my kids. And so, and it still upsets me. Like I have a beautiful relationship with them now, but it was 10 years of seeing them like, you know, three hours a week or 10 hours a week. And then this very limited step-up plan that took forever to come into place. 
and um, this new relationship where they were having them call her mom and they refused to call me mom. And, and I've never been spoken of kindly. I've never been uplifted. There's never been like your mom got over this addiction and she was sick. It was your mom left you to go party and she's a horrible person. Like this is what I'm running up against. Um, this force, this powerful, angry, wealthy force that wants nothing more than to just eliminate me. And so I drank more. I got up in the morning and I would drink four shots of vodka to make sure I wasn't hungover and pop three 20 milligram Adderalls. And then it would just go from there, you know? And then um, it's, it's going and it's going and it's going. And does, does the heartbreak lead to lead to you getting sober? Like the heartbreak with, with, the, with the kids? Yes. Um, what happened was it was a week away from the custody battle being done. The kids were young. They were, uh, now they're, 14 and 13. So now at that point, they were six and five, literally a week away from it being signed and me getting a step up plan to 50 50, all that. And the woman he had had befriend me at the preschool asked me to go to a concert. They like literally paid a woman to befriend me to give him information. Asked me to go to a concert. Um, I met her before at a bar. We were drinking. The PI was a table away, watching, filming, listening. This is a, this is a lifetime movie, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. The guy that I was dating at the time was like, cheers to pee popsicles. And she was like, what? And he was like, oh, yeah, that's how Ollie can drink. She freezes her pee and then. And you beat the drug test. Beat the drug test. Monday, my lawyer calls me. What the F happened? I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, we're having an emergency hearing for tomorrow. You're losing custody. Nothing's on the board. Like we were having them sign the papers today. What did you do? And I was like, what are you talking about? I had no idea. And even sitting at that table, even sitting at that table, Pete, I was like, oh, he has people following me. That guy right there, he's probably a PI. F-U-P-I. Like that's how far gone I was. I looked the guy right in the face and I was like, F-U-P-I. And he was the PI that's when I completely lost custody and losing um, custody that led to all rehab. Of, so you go to rehab sure. where I went to rehab in LA with outpatient called ARC. It was fantastic. That's where I met my therapist. He's still my therapist today. He actually moved Austin. So I refer everyone to him. He saved my life. Uh, did not patient program there. And that's when I was still taking the Adderall. Um, got into the program, um, didn't share sat in the back, didn't share at all. It was like, none of these people are like, so me. you're going, so the program is you're, you're going to meetings. You're going to 12 step meetings. Going to meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to get things signed. I have to go to five meetings a week. Like it was very, very strict. Did you want, did you want to go? Like, did you want to get sober when you no. got, to, okay. No, no, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to get sober. It's the point. None of this stuff was happening. I wasn't going to see my kids. There was no part of me that wanted to get sober. I was pissed. Um, I very quickly decided that I had to, because otherwise I would never have my kids, but I was angry. I was angry and I was sad and I was hurt and I was little, I was so little. I had no light. I had no sunshine of the spirit, nothing. Like I was, I was broken. Um, and nine months into it, I had a binge where I, you know, took a ton of someone else's drugs and Adderall, not drugs, just Adderall and Pepsidrine mm -hmm. and all those things. And I hadn't been drug tested for, I don't know, like four months. The drug testing had stopped after rehab. And I got a random call from the uh, the drug person. And he was like, I need you to go test today. And I was like, what? There's no court order. I don't need to go test today. He was like, yeah, you have to go test today. And I'm like, I have a flat tire. My tires are bald. I'm out of town. I mean, I gave him like seven excuses in a row why I couldn't go. And I'd just been on the binge and stayed up all night and like ironed my curtains and organized my spice <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of excitement that I had at that point with using um, cleanest house ever. Brushing, brushing, <laughs> uh, I've heard brushing the front lawn with a toothbrush. Oh, I had toothbrushes to clean the corners. There was not a speck of dirt anywhere. Like I was ironing underwear. This is what it had come to because I couldn't go out and party. But I couldn't stay sober. So I was just like in this house with um, curtains drawn, like there's cloudy films on all the windows so no one could see me, like crackhead status. Like the only reason why it wasn't tinfoil was because I knew better and had 
a design aesthetic, you know? And people, uh, people that don't know, I mean, look, for folks that are, aren't addicts and they take Adderall, you know, that's all well and good. For me, that's not the case. Sounds like for you, it, it was not either. So you get drug tested and you could, t- basically you test positive for meth almost. I mean, that's how much, right? Yeah, seven times the prescribed amount was what my, was what my test was. I was seven times over the legal limit. So what happens of then? Adderall. I get sober. Then I truly, truly get sober. Um, that phone call, I still remember it. That phone call, I had a friend who was sober, who was my best friend, who I randomly met at a gym class. So that's really important to say. His name, he would not mind me saying, is Asher Goddison. He has a lot of sober living houses in LA. Ash, Asher, Asher Goddison? Goddison, okay. yeah. Transcend is the sober living houses. He's an exceptional human being was just a couple years sober when we became friends and um, we went to Barry's boot camp together and uh, was my Eskimo. He was the one that helped me get sober. He was the one that helped me get on the right path. He, along with Peter and a couple other people, I um, I very easily can say saved my life. Um, I called him. I was on the floor after that phone call from the lawyer when I knew that I'd lost the kid and I, I literally couldn't move. I was like, I was in a puddle of tears and snot and just, I couldn't move. And I called him and I couldn't even speak. I I just said, I need you. And he came over and literally like picked me up off the floor and took me to a meeting. And And it's amazing. Guys like that are promotion by attraction. I mean, that's somebody mm -hmm. who you knew you had in your life that had the sunlight of the spirit going through him. um, And just in layman's terms, just had a light coming off him. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he was already my best friend. Like, um, it was just, I mean, still the person that I'll call now if I, if I'm feeling lost or anything, you know, like he was already my best friend and he was put in my life for a reason. Like I gen, I genuinely do not feel like anything's an accident, you know, um, everything happens for a reason. We don't know what it is at the time. Almost always we don't know what it is, but in hindsight, 2020, it's like, oh yeah, like it all lines up in this beautiful, messy, um, way that life goes you know and his presence in my life was not an accident and he would come and I was on that floor and depressed for you know a good five months before I could take myself to a meeting so he would come every day and pick me up and take me to a meeting you're going to meetings going to meetings running through sponsors like no one's business because no one could relate to me right like they didn't know my story um still resistant but definitely sober started really leaning into it and and the shift happened for me um when it went from like resentment to acceptance and knowing that this was the only way that I was going to ever have my kids again and have a life and and quite frankly like want to live right yeah um when I started sharing and and stopped and sharing means like speaking up in meetings and trying to connect with other people and I stopped looking for the differences and started seeing the similarities. Like if I'm looking for, they weren't married to a doctor. They didn't have a PI on them. They don't have the meanest lawyer in the world. Like stop looking for that and seeing like they have a God-shaped hole in their heart. They were hurt when they were young. They just want to be loved and understood. You know, they don't feel like they're worthy. Um, That's the magic. All of those. Yeah, that's the magic when you stop comparing yourself out when you stop with that term because people compare themselves out they go out they drink and then they die I mean that's the that's that's the reality of it because this you know this stuff will kill you and on the exact opposite side of the coin it also will give you it's the best game in town like now I'm hearing you talk you're going to meetings you're sharing you're opening up I mean how does that how does that feel to finally be open and honest with people about what's going on um, it felt freeing, right? It felt, it felt amazing. And, um, I felt like I had found my people. Um, we're weird. We're a weird group. We have really dark senses of humor mm-hmm. and like the vast majority of us have fantastic senses of humor. We're smart. We're wicked. We're, um, too much a lot of the time, which I think is bullshit. Like I think it's all the exact amount that you should be, but 
from other people's lens. Like <laughs> we're, we're weird, we're a weird lot. And I loved it. And I felt like I had found my people. Um, for me, I was always a little scared though, because I, uh, I was still in the middle of this custody battle and it was dirty and it was nasty and it had gotten nastier. And I knew, I knew that if I did relapse, I couldn't be honest about it because I would lose what little time with my kids I had. So that part made me, it kept me sober, but it also made me mad because I couldn't have a genuine experience with it. And I didn't have a desire to use, I didn't have a desire to drink, but I hated that I wasn't allowed to be who I was completely, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, yeah, and then and then if I did slip up, I couldn't be honest about it, and I couldn't work through it. I didn't slip up, but I had that hanging over my head. So from that point, I got really into the program. I went to a lot of meetings. I liked it. It was my life. It was my family. It was it was my anchor. Still custody battle, and um, there was just something going on with the judge that we had. He didn't like me. He didn't trust me. And after seeing everything that happened there, I'm almost fully convinced that there was an agreement going on on their side. Um, and this last part, I mean, he was just so hard on me. I had hundreds of drug tests showing that I was sober and he just still wouldn't up the custody. I knew other people that had had this person as a judge way worse than me who had their custody back in a year. Like none of it made sense, and I mean, by saying I knew, we, I knew six other moms from the program who had been going through a similar situation. They've already had their kids back. Like it didn't make any sense. And then, which is also part of the Lifetime movie, right? Yeah, but then the magic so, of this, from what I'm hearing, is you're not drinking. I kept sober. This is going yeah. on. You're you're, you're yeah. staying sober, and you know you're talking to other people about it. And and for me, that's yeah. the thing that I look at in my life. There was so much stuff that used to happen to me that I used to go and get drunk and just squash or just, you yeah. know, stuff my soul with alcohol. And there became a point finally when I turned the corner and something bad happens to me or something trying or there's trauma and I talk to somebody else about it and I get that same feeling I got from getting drunk. And it's, a, and oh, but it's not, yes. kill, but it's not killing me. Yes, that healthy buzz. Yes. So that's like, yeah, that's the healthy buzz. That's my slogan for my company, endorphin stealer. Like, I'm your chief endorphins officer. Like, that's why I got into fitness so much. Like, I'm getting that healthy high all the time. Like, it's, it's real. And I, I wanted to ask you that. When when did you realize that fitness was going to be a, a big part of, of your recovery? When I first got sober and I started going to cycling class. And that's where I worked through all my pain. Like, it was dark. It was rhythmic. I was crying every class. Um, I found my worth again in there. Like I, I found my sobriety in the room, but I started building up my self-esteem and building up my worth again through exercise. Um, and I and I saw, I felt that I could get that buzz and that same endorphins from that in a healthy way, and it and it transferred over into. Um, feeling good about myself again and feeling worthy and feeling like maybe I did have something to offer. I was talking to a dude uh, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, just gotten sober or, you know, just trying to stop a couple of days. And he was like, I was like, Hey, what'd you do today? Not like I'm taking his inventory. He was telling me. And he was like, I actually, wa I walked around the, the block this morning for like, you know, a half hour, walked outside. And then I rode the Peloton for 45 minutes at night. And I was like thinking to myself, like, dude, that's a great way. It's a great thing to weave in. Um, to, to sobriety. I mean, it was huge for me. And, and when this guy told me that, I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, I felt like this guy's got a real shot. Yeah. And just like people don't talk about trauma enough, they actually don't talk about how crucial diet and exercise is for a recovering addict. Like, I mean, food is medicine, right? And the things that you put into your body and the things that you do with your body when you're sober we're so much more sensitive to things than, than a normie. So like the positive effects of moving your body, getting those endorphins going, it goes a really long way for someone in early recovery. And it, and it kind of catapults that, uh, I like to call my husband calls it directional confidence. Like, like it catapults you in the right direction in a way that without it, you struggle with, you know, like you, you don't have that endorphin kick. You don't have, that confidence that comes from a strong body. And, and like, that's the kind of thing that I want to 
really put out there. Um, I eventually want to get my doctorate in the relation between recovery and exercise, recovery and food, like how that plays a whole, a part in it. Um, these are, you know, lifetime goals of mine, but, but it is, it was so crucial to my recovery and still is like, if I go a couple of days without working out, I am grumpy. Yeah. I am thinking my head's not going the right way. Everyone's wrong. Everyone's stupid. Like <laughs> it starts, I start going into that dry drunk real, real fast. Yeah. I mean, you uh, catch me after a couple of days of not working out or, or no meetings and, uh, I'm a tough guy to be around. And I, I, I owe it real, to the people really I, I owe it to the people I care about, right? To 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 be yes. to be present and to go to meetings and, and, and to work out. Um and to and to and to work, to do my craft, because for all for me, those are all esteemable things that uh that give me the confidence and enable me to be of service and the person I need to be. Because I mean, I got yes. a ton of flaws and they're on steroids when I'm not taking care of myself. I was doing push ups. Like they're they're not doing push-ups. They're like on steroids and like doing heavy lifting. They're trying they're trying to be Mr. Olympus or Olympic or whatever. <laughs> they're just they're just waiting for you. What what do you tell your kids about about sobriety and about recovery? Yeah, so um they were real young when I got sober, so I didn't say anything for a while. Um and then that right was taken away from me. Someone else told them and, and told it to them in a very negative way. Um and so at that point, I realized, you know, they're going to have to hear the dialogue and hear it from me. When they were younger, when they were eight and seven, I told them, this is when they were told, and then I had to, you know, redirect the thinking. I told them that I was sick, that I had a disease, and that going to meetings and um, being around other people who felt the same way helped me be better. And as long as I, like going to meetings was my medicine. And the program was my medicine. And as long as I took my medicine, I'd be okay. And that's as simple as I kept it at that age. As they got older, I would always check in with my therapist and check in with my sponsor. Like, at, you know, are, how much more can they handle now? Like, what more information can I give them? And the rule that was given to me was, you know, if, if they ask you a question, then they're ready to have some version of the answer, right? Mm -hmm. So I never offered the information. I just always told them they can ask me at seven and eight, you can ask me whatever you want. I will answer any question that you have, honestly. Some of it might make you think differently of me. Some of it might not. Like I, I made a lot of mistakes, but like I will never be dishonest with you about it. And I've kept that promise. And, you know, at this point, they're both teenagers and they know my story inside and out. I go to Austin and I'm close friends, obviously like family. That's how Ali yeah. and I know each other. Uh, the Weningers yeah. who are the, the, you know, the, the greatest people on earth. Uh, but they, I, I have gotten to know you through them um, from a distance and then, you know, got the opportunity to meet you. But, and by the way, that's why, you, you know, I'm talking to you right now. This, this whole podcast is about people that are living a full life and that, have something coming off them uh, that are sober. And you are one of those people. And I think it's so important for you to be out there and to be seen. Uh, and, and your message of sobriety is carried, whether it's through me or through you or, you know, some other conduit. People need to see people like you and they need to know that you're sober. Your kids are ar around you a lot. And, uh, and there's, there's a warmth that comes off like, like your family. Um, and we talked about yeah. it, we talked about it earlier too, you know, and this isn't always the solution. I mean, I know pl plenty of people who have gotten married to quote unquote, normal people, people without drinking problems, but your husband, uh, is, happens to be sober. He, he is. Yeah. He's sober and has been open with his kids about it as well. Um, we met in the rooms here in Austin. Um, but I ignored him for a couple years. Years. he's handsome yes so he's handsome and i was still dating someone from la so like i i won't i wouldn't even look at him like he thought i was the biggest b like total ice queen um we'd be in a group of like five people after the meeting and we'd all be talking and he would ask me a question and i would just pretend like i hadn't i didn't hear it or i'd like walk away or something because I was being respectful. I was being respectful of my relationship. And I knew that, that he was someone that I would be physically attracted to. And so I just wasn't going to open up that, that door at all. That's just how I operate. Um, and so when that relationship ended, he and I 
started dating and he was like, I had to get to know you all over again. And I thought he was just, you know, a cocky dude who just, you know, all the girls in the program wanted to date him kind of thing. And, and they did all want to date him, but he's not cocky. He's a beautiful human being, but we really had to, you know, like get to know each other again through that. Um, and when he found out why I ignored him, he thought that was a pretty solid reason. That's a pretty good reason. Uh, and and that's a, it's a, a yeah, what's about living. And that's another thing too. You know, when I'm not living right, I don't feel, I don't feel very good about myself. And when I'm living right, you know, doing things uh, like respecting situations, uh, I feel better about myself. And I, and honestly, Absolutely. I'm probably more attractive to other people, just like, you know, the way that I carry myself. For sure. They want that person that has that integrity because they might not know what it is, but when you're living in integrity and when you're living with, you know, applying the principles, applying, applying all the knowledge that you have to every part of your life, people feel that and they want that. And that's part of, you know, like stay in the sunshine, stay in the light, don't go in the darkness, like be the example that people want in their, be what people want in their lives. And that's what, that's what just pulls them all to you and that's how you make the difference right how do you maintain that light how do you keep that light on how do you stay so happy uh in sobriety because i went through hell to get it and i never forget like i never want to look at my kids and say i'm sorry i don't get to see you again like i'm sorry you know when I had to tell, when everything happened and I was seeing them every day and then all of that got taken away like that, they were little. And I told them, I said, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't come see you every day anymore. And they were crying and bawling and kicking. And they were like, I don't understand mommy. And how could they? And I did that. Like I did that to our relationship. I know that it was my addiction that did it, but in their little hearts, I just wasn't there anymore. Right. And as much as they understand that, the idea of losing any more time with them is enough to stop me in my tracks. Now, that being said, I'm lucky because a lot of people, their addiction is so strong that even the notion of not having their children isn't enough to keep them sober. And I thank God, like every time I think about it, I thank God, like, thank God that was enough for me because some people that's so strong that even that, and they're good parents. They're good people. They love their kids, but their addiction is so strong that that's not enough for them. But that's enough for me. And that keeps me sober. And what keeps me, you know, bright and sunshiny is I right size shit. Like something goes wrong in my day. Uh, I don't like my job. Whatever it is, I have 10 years of excruciating pain and being told I wasn't good enough and that I shouldn't be a mom and that they'd be better off without me. And you're never going to have your kids again. I have 10 years of that kind of pain to relate it to and right size it. Like nothing's a big deal to me, honestly, like to the point where people kind of think that it's almost lazy or I don't know. Like you said, you keep things right sized. And, and if you, if I stay in gratitude, uh, I definitely, I don't, I, and this is a cliche. I don't major in the minor, right? Like stuff that happens, yes. uh, affect, it yes. doesn't affect. I, I know what it's like to crawl into your first meeting or to be looked at as somebody who's completely hopeless, a complete taker, somebody who we don't want around. I'm not like that today at all. And sometimes I think when people are, maybe, uh, maybe it's a sense of humor thing. Maybe it's whatever. Maybe it's, I don't understand why he's not taking this the way that I am. I think these people have no clue what I would be like. No clue. Like, no clue what it, what it, yeah, what you would be like, what I would be like, what all of us would be like that have struggled with this. And, um, you know, so, so like, I know what pain feels like. I know what this, I know what pain feels like where you're on the floor and can't get up. I know what it feels like where you just don't want to wake up. Like, I know what all of that feels like. So if, you know, it's not a big deal. What do they say? Like, it doesn't matter unless it's a big deal and nothing's a big deal. Like, it's just, nothing is a big deal it's just all about like the joy and the love and the spirit and my mom used to tell me when you change the way you look at things the way things look change and I apply that to everything like it's perspective yeah you got a flat tire but you got a car 
yeah, you have a crappy boss, but that's a chance for you to apply the principles and to grow as a human being and to be an example of how to handle that for your other coworkers. I know I'm in a good you know? place when uh, there's a difficult situation in my life and I tell myself, or somebody tells me, usually it's somebody telling me, hey, this is an opportunity for you to grow. When I'm looking yes. at things through, through that lens, I'm like, all right, like I'm definitely, I'm probably about to do the, the right thing here, which isn't always the case. What do you tell somebody that is just getting sober or, or thinking about getting sober? I, I, I tell them this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. and It's going to be the best thing you've ever done. And, and the only person that can choose this for you is you. Like, if this isn't for you, then it's not going to work. You know, you, ha- you have to commit to it. And it's like, this, it will be the most painful thing you've ever gone through. And when you get to the other side, you'll be happy for every single second of those feelings. I just want to be real honest with them, you know, and let them know, like, I'm there day or night. You don't have to do this alone. It's going to, it's going to suck. <laughs> and then it won't. And then it's like less and less and less. And then it's great. But like, you got to get through, you got to go straight through it. You can't go around it straight through. That's the only way. And that applies to life. I mean, at some point you realize yeah. when you get old enough, like nothing worth, worth anything is, is easy. Absolutely. And, and sobriety is uh it's kind of a, it's a much bigger version of that, I guess. So any, anything else you want to share? Oh Lord. Open-ended question. Oh Lord. I hope you can edit this afterwards and edit all the empty space where I'm thinking of an answer for that. We can do that. Uh, Mike, Mike can do that. <laughs> Thanks Mike. Yeah. Oh, I forgot Mike was listening in the background. <laughs> I was more nervous. I mean, everything that's coming to mind is so cliche, but I don't care because they're sayings for a reason, right? Like you have all these different sayings for a reason. And I mean, the thing that I would tell them is it's worth it. You know, it's worth it. And, and you're like, you're worth it. Like you are worthy of feeling good about yourself and feeling like you have a place in this world, you know, like your presence, your sobriety, you can make a difference just by, just by showing up for yourself, you know? You don't have to be quiet about it. There's, oh, and no shame. Do it, like, stop with the shaming. They say, like, addiction and alcoholism still has such a bad connotation to it. That's what I would say. There's no shame in you having this affliction and you being an addict and you being an alcoholic in your history. There's no shame in that at all. Like, it's actually a beautiful opportunity for you to get these tools and have a life that's so much more fulfilling and has so much more depth than the average person. Like as much as I've gone through, I'm so happy for it because before I had the program, before I got sober, I didn't know what, I didn't know how to do anything right. Relationships, jobs, um, taking care of the house, taxes. Like I missed the life manual and the manual that I got from taking this seriously and diving straight in makes me the best version of myself that I could possibly be. I've heard a guy say and once, like, it's, the, it's the only thing, you know, because it, it's a disease as far as the American Medical Association is concerned. It's the only disease you can have. You can actually be better off for having it. Yes. Like, it's a gift. When applied, if you change the way you look at things, the way things look change, right? This is a gift for us to be able to elevate and vibrate on a higher level and be of service to others and like make an impact. You know, I, I, I look at this as it's a really weird gift. It doesn't have the best wrapping paper, but when you open it up, it's spectacular. And I'm, I'm happy to be one of us. Ali, I knew this was going to be good. I didn't know it was going to be that good. So uh, Ali Perry fitness is the Instagram, right? Ali Perry fitness. And it's Ali Perry.com. A L I P E R R Y fitness. Uh, and, so, and, and so you're in, you're in Austin, uh, you teach ride I'm classes there. Uh, and a lot of yeah, stuff on Ali, Ali Perry fitness real quick is, um, it's ver- some of the stuff is virtual right now too. I saw. Yeah. So I'm about a couple weeks away from launching my app, which is daily workouts and meal plans. And, uh, my favorite part of it is the foundation. So it's AP fit fuel and foundations. Foundations is like the community where you can reach out to me talk to me. I look at working out as a way of working things out of you from the inside out, like getting stronger emotionally and mentally. And the physical part is just a lovely side effect. So it's an inclusive community where I'm going to be 
just helping women, men, whoever it is, like find their strength and their power again. Um, and I'm going to be gifting, I don't know how many yet, either 100 or 200 subscriptions to local teachers in Ty- or nationwide. They can do be anywhere. But when I launch it, I'm going to be gifting a couple hundred subscriptions to teachers because they are in the front lines and they need something to help them feel good right now. And I come from a family of teachers, so... I'll let you know that and you can link it. And then the first 200 that come to me will get the subscription for free and they can work out and feel good and then help our kids. And it's just a big circle of happiness. <laughs> it's a big circle of happiness. A circle of life looked pretty good today. Ali, um, uh, I guess we're, we're done now, but I can't thank you enough. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Sousa. And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts. You can find it at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or Spotify. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.